0: Hi everyone, my name is Sarah and I'd like to welcome you all to the second podcast in our Inspirational Women mini-series featuring Dr Angela Stratton. Angela is a rural generalist who lives with her husband and three beautiful children in Mount Beauty and she's recently been appointed as the new statewide clinical lead for the Victorian Rural Generalist Program. Hi Angela, thank you so much for chatting to us today, we're really um, happy to have you on our podcast. Thank you Uh, Sarah, thanks for having me. No worries. So our first question that we have for you today is what led you to become a rural doctor?
1: So I grew up in Aubrey-Wodonga. So for those that don't know, is a regional centre on the New South Wales-Victorian border. And I also had a short stint in Dubbo in year 11 and 12. So in about year 12, I decided I'd like to be a doctor, um, mostly because I wanted to help people. And I got a little bit hooked on a TV show called Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. So I don't know how many of you have ever actually seen that. I might be showing my age here. And it's based on a a female doctor uh, who worked in the the rough North of American pioneer days. And she was so cool running off to save people on horseback with minimal supplies. And I just loved it. And I wanted to, um, to do that as well. So then I went across to Newcastle Uni to do med school um, and I was quite altruistic when I got there and I was going to save the world, one rural community at a time and like many country kids, I participated in the John Flynn Scholarship Scheme over in a remote town in WA and I was actually one of the rare participants who didn't enjoy my John Flynn placement that much. I really struggled with the remote medicine and the, the challenges that the health professionals were facing in, in many remote communities. And I also didn't like the heat and I felt quite socially isolated over there. And then I found my Metro GP placements as a student were pretty underwhelming. And I confess, I, I actually fell asleep once um, during <laughs> observing the consults. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so being a city GP didn't cross my mind. So really I actually headed down the path of ONG training initially. And it wasn't until I was working as an, an unaccredited o Reg up in Newcastle and I realised that I didn't like doing big blocks, four-hour blocks of surgery day after day. And I saw after having my first child how non-family friendly specialty training was, which I'm sure many of you Um, can relate to seeing as a student. So then I started hanging out in the ED and people would be saying, why is the ONG Reg helping tube that guy in the resus bay? And and I was getting more awareness of the the skills that specialists, um, single specialists, because GPs are specialists, um, often lose. And, And I didn't like not being able to manage coexisting conditions in my ONG patients. And I remember showing an ONG consult I consultant an ECG from a gynae patient on the ward and she looked at me blankly and had no idea how to read it and wanted me to get a med reg to come and just read the ECG and I thought this is ludicrous how can we not you know de-skill so much we can't read an ECG and I think personally we were getting to a point at that time my husband and I that we really realised that the city wasn't for us and we wanted to go back to the country so the procedural general practice is really what what fitted the best and we. Having grown up in Albury Wodonga, we wanted to go back to the northeast Victorian region, and so Akram training fitted with sort of what I wanted to do and, and where I wanted to go with that. And while investigating potential towns in the region, we discovered this brilliant thing called alpine medicine that I didn't know existed um, prior to that. So off we went to Mount Beauty with, with two kids in tow, and you know, I'd only been in town three months before delivering first baby there and it really hit to me how essential um, it, GPs were to the community and um, really haven't looked back. It's not much you can't do in this role, it's pretty cool.
0: Wow, that sounds fantastic. So our second question for you today is you've had many teaching roles throughout your career. What made you become interested in teaching? Is that something you were interested in prior to commencing medicine or did your interest in teaching develop during your clinical training?
1: So interestingly, um, back in high school before I wanted to do medicine, I actually wanted to be a high school math science teacher. So I was, however, was steered away from that career um, by my mum, who had been a high school teacher before she went and studied law. So I guess the teaching back um, teaching interest was always in the background. Um, At medical school, which though some would disbelieve it now, my my confidence was actually pretty low. And I was one of those students who was just passing from year to year. And I felt really intimidated through that um, teach-through humiliation approach, which we so often saw back then. It's becoming less and less. But I was just, just to be terrified when I'd speak in front of a group on the wards and I used to try and be hidden and hopefully I'd never ask questions. So the idea of teaching really didn't even cross my mind. But then... As I became a junior doctor, it really allowed me to find my groove. I think I was a classic example of how your performance at medical school doesn't necessarily correlate to how you perform as a junior doctor. And and suddenly, I just the whole world. I was I was a good intern. I could do this, and and my confidence just just took off. And I think as a result, I found that I used to have medical students tended to follow me around, and I actually liked having them around. and Then I just incidentally got tapped on the shoulder to start do a presentation for the IMGs or the junior doctors. And then I realized that if I knew my topic, um, I actually didn't mind standing up and talking about it. Plus I was pretty determined I didn't want others to have that same fear that I had coming through. So I used to just put my hand up more and more. and, And I remember when I was a gyne reg, I felt it was my duty that every doctor in the ED should be confident to do a speculum and confidently look at a cervix. So I invented this game called Name That Cervix where I'd, I'd put photos of different cervixes, if that's the correct plural, um, <laughs> up. And the ED doctors would play the quiz show and they'd buzz in. And, and teaching actually became fun. It, it energised me. I used to love standing up. And, and I, I had a bit of a knack for... Um, making the teaching relevant to everyday practice. I think that disconnect that I'd experienced between the science at med school and then the actual application of a doctor, I was able to narrow that gap for other people. So that's kind of, I just fell into it. And then I didn't really get my first formal teaching appointment until after my GP fellowship, when I became a medical educator with general practice training. And then I just started getting tapped on my shoulder for more and more opportunities. And it's funny now from that timid, Doctor on the uh, medical student on the ward to now, you know, I can stand up in front of a few hundred people and just chat away. In fact, they have, to have struggled to shut me up sometimes, so <laughs> it's um, yeah. And then since I've just found a new appreciation for teaching and have um, gone on to do some a grad certificate in clinical teaching through Melbourne Uni and just keep going on. And, and I look back now and think if I was a high school teacher, you know. That's, that's one of the, I think teachers have got one of the hardest gigs in the world and, you know, particularly facing a room full of kids who don't want to be there. Yet now here I am teaching a bunch of adults who really want to learn and, you know, lap up what what we say and crave teaching. So it's just fantastic. I I feel really honored to do this job. Oh,
0: wow. And we feel honored to have you as a clinical teacher. I can tell (laughs) from, I can tell you from experience that you're fantastic. So thank you very much. Um, And thank you for sharing about feeling, you know, timid in your younger years, because I think that's a really common experience for medical students. So it's nice to have that kind of open discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, So our third question for you today is, what do you think your biggest challenge will be as the statewide clinical lead for the Victorian Rural Generals Program, which is a new role to you? um, And how have you prepared for this?
1: Oh, yes, so thank you. I'm so incredibly excited about this program. So, um, for those that don't know, having rural generalism recognised as a subspecialty of general practice has really provided rural GPs with the recognition they deserve. So, you know, the scope of practice rural GPs have is so unique and often underappreciated. So, to have it recognised, you know, federally and state to the point that they're developing this new program in Victoria is fantastic. So uh, the biggest challenge for me will really be engaging all the different stakeholders that are already doing work in this area and helping them see the benefit from a coordinated approach because there's a lot of great stuff happening, but it's sort of, you know, you're doing a bit of good stuff over there and then someone else is doing a bit of good stuff here. So to be able to join all that together um, I think will be a challenge and to do it successfully. The other thing is to keep everybody, including myself, I guess, focused on the bigger picture. And although we want to train rural generalists, it's actually, the purpose is about improving the health of rural communities by having the right doctors in those right places. So, um, to me, we'll need to stay focused on that and hopefully see some really good outcomes in our communities down the track. Great, that
0: sounds fantastic. Um, and just for those that uh, don't really like have much prior knowledge about um, what the VRGP is, what's kind of the vision of this new program um versus how it used to operate you were saying kind of like consolidating things
1: and Mm. yeah Yeah, yes absolutely so um Victorian Rural Generalist Program, and there are similar programs in other states as well, it's, it's being federally rolled out, is an end-to-end training program for students who, you know, become junior doctors who would like to become rural generalists. So previously you had to find your own intern placement, which may or may not have been in a community program. You might only have a one-year contract, you're not sure where you're going the next year, you've got to try and pave your own path and then eventually and join GP training and, and get your advanced skills. Whereas now we're gonna help coordinate that. And mm-hmm. trainees who want to go on this path will actually be provided with the opportunity to create a path that will be supported. So we will put you in a place, you might have a two or three year contract in those early years. We can connect you with community early on and you can go and do placements in that community that you can then go back into as a GP. We can, and will be guaranteed sort of protected advanced skill training spots. Um, and then also supporting your fellowship out the other end so it's really trying to make it easier streamlining it and giving people a career path and for those that may want to join later on we are obviously will set people further down as well but for those that know really early in their career that they want to go rural we want to help them out from day one
0: wow those changes sound fantastic (laughs) i can tell from personal experience and i'm sure a lot of people can i was in the erc last year and yeah, there's lots of similar challenges. So that kind of program sounds fantastic to really help people get into the country.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Fingers crossed. we yeah. in
1: the early days, but it'll be good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> great. Um, our fourth question is along with your teaching roles, ha- um, you've also had many leadership roles. How did you become interested or involved in leadership? Did you face any obstacles? Did you have great mentors or people that were pivotal in your leadership journey? And was being a leader something you always aspired to
1: to be? Yeah, so um, so it's funny with leadership because you don't kind of think of it as a thing as such until you're actually in it. <laughs> but I guess if I look back at it, um, my first leadership roles were as a teenager in the in the Girl Guides. So I can I can credit guides with the foundation of uh leadership and teamwork skills and i was a junior leader with them i went right through as a a leader when i was a junior doctor so i was the most overqualified camp first aider you can possibly imagine (laughs) Um, plus i actually volunteered overseas um in switzerland at a a girl scout center over there for for a while so i think you know leadership is at the fund you know foundations of the girl guides program But this is, the role that I'm in now is the first official medical leadership role that I've had, Um, and though my colleagues know that I've been pushing boundaries for a pretty long time. And over the years, I've become pretty assertive along the way, and I do put a few noses out every now and then, but that's because I like to think I hold people accountable for their actions and what what they need to be doing and keep them responsible. female leaders do need to lead differently um i think there's that balance to the need to balance empathy and strength which the expectations of female leaders is very different and regardless of your political views you know seeing what happened with julia gillard um i think is a lesson for all female leaders about how how the challenges how to overcome the challenges in those roles so look I, i see this as a real opportunity for me to further develop my professional identity and as I said I'm, I'm quite excited and yeah we'll, we'll see where it goes. Great yeah I'm sure we'll all be following you closely.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Great. <laughs> um, the next question was if you had your time again would you choose medicine? Why or why not?
1: Yes so Sarah you and I've had discussions about this over the uh, yes. Over yes. years which is great <laughs> so look this is such an interesting question and medicine is a really hard career. And, you know, I feel so honoured that you've asked me to, to talk on this podcast when I'm not even halfway through my own medical career yet. So when I look back, part of my desire to be a doctor was to help people. And the part I love most about being a GP is the people. So chatting with people, knowing their stories and connecting them. is why I always run late in my clinic, because I just talk to people so much. So I'm actually not as interested, nor that good at the science in itself the science part is a hard slog for me i find my brain's a sieve and it's hard to keep up and over the years i've had to develop lots of ways of ensuring that i can still do best practice without being able to rote learn information so if you look at the parts of medicine that i love helping people connecting with them then there's actually a lot of other jobs that you could do that Mm. you could do without having to memorise massive amounts of science, So (laughs) of course there's been times when I've questioned if I had my time again, would I take this path? And I don't actually necessarily have the answer to that. Mm. But having said it, there's actually a big difference between not necessarily taking the same path again and actually regretting the decision that you've made. Mm. And do I regret doing medicine? Absolutely not, no way. Being a doctor is a privilege and there's so many positive things that I've done. You know, lives I've saved made real differences for people and medicine has provided me with so many opportunities for personal growth. So there's no way you can regret that. Mm. But I do think it's healthy to reflect on your choices and it, it helps you to grow and appreciate who you've become along the way.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That's a really positive way of looking at, at it.
1: So, yeah, that's
0: great. Um, our next question is how has medicine changed your life and has it changed in a positive or a negative way? What has been your best and your worst moments?
1: So medicine's allowed me to do amazing things. So I recently presented on rural generalism at a career, virtual career expo. And as part of that presentation, I wrote a list called "Things I Would Not Have Done If I Wasn't a Rural Generalist," and yes, the double negative was deliberate. <laughs> and this, you know, this list included, you know, delivering a baby in a blizzard, you know, man- managing a trauma with no nurses, you know, getting a radiology license, attending road cycle accidents, you know, delivering meningococcal prophylaxis to 160 contacts. Volunteering at the Commonwealth Games, you know, teaching old ladies about sex after cancer, you know, taking my kids to work and ultimately actually having a third child because I don't yeah. think that would have happened if I hadn't been where it was. So, individually, many doctors could have done this list too, but in combination, I doubt um, I ever would have done it without being an RG. So, you know, in ways, has it changed my life for the positive? Absolutely. Negatively, well you know, death and psychological trauma that you're exposed to through your patients, um, but that never gets easier. So you do develop strategies over time. Um, I think all my worst moments, um, which was in the questions I thought, do I want to do that? I so, thought, no, I will answer that question. <laughs> um, most of them are related to the unexpected deaths or, or abuse of, of children. And, you know, the one that stands out to me was the, the failed resuscitation of a six month old. And mm. um, hearing, the mother wailing as it echoed through the emergency department and being expected as a JMO just to ignore it and pick up the next patient when all you really wanted to do was just sit and cry with the mum. And My own daughter was the same age. I remember getting home from work after that shift and just crying and crying and holding my daughter. You know, or another one, you know, telling a pregnant mother that her baby's died when I was heavily pregnant myself. And, you know, as, as you get more experienced, you realise the culture in medicine to just suck it up and push on in those situations is actually quite toxic. You know, it eats you up inside. And and now I let myself grieve. So, you know, I'll I'll sit and cry with a patient or I'll take the time that I need. And patients benefit from seeing that you're human too. And, you know, I show myself the same compassion that I would give to others. So although there's those negatives, um, you can turn them into a positive and you grow from that and you can make sure that, you know this is if this is an awful thing that you're experiencing through your patient, then at least you can do is try and make that the the journey a bit easier for the patient as well,
0: yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those stories. They sound like they're really hard experiences, but unfortunately probably experiences that a lot of us will have.
1: Yeah. And I think just remembering that, it, yeah, it's, you don't suck it up and push on. You need, otherwise it will, it will eat you up and you need to let yourself grieve and you need to be human and just um, give yourself time and allow for that. When those Absolutely. debrief with others.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because if we're not taking care of ourselves, how are we going to take care of others as well? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's easier said than done, though, believe me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. Um, Our next question is um, about kind of parenting in medicine. So we have lots of people in the MedFem community interested in parenting in medicine. Um, So we wanted to ask you about your experiences raising your three beautiful children alongside your medical career. How has having a family changed your medical journey and how has medicine influenced your family life?
1: So, wow, where to start with this? I think we could do a whole podcast (laughs) just on this. So, look, without a doubt, being a parent has made me a better doctor. So I'm so much less judgmental than I was pre-kids. I look at patients differently now as I understand the challenges better and I realise that, you know what, if your kids are dressed, fed and loved and, you know, you get them out the door, then that's great. <laughs> it doesn't matter if their clothes aren't keen or anything else. So look, I really personally struggled with the adjustment to parenthood. Like, like many people, I had this goal in mind about the perfect parent I was going to be. And there was really a mismatch between the mother that I thought was perfect and the reality of what I was able and capable of doing. I set myself unrealistic expectations that actually really weren't even me. I don't Mm -hmm. know who I was trying to be. I think society and culture does lead you to believe um, that what you need to be, but then it's actually impossible. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think anyone can be that. There's no such thing. So, you know, I had to learn a phrase that I got from someone else that said, you know, I'm a good enough mother. I'm not a perfect one. So I've been incredibly lucky to have a supportive partner. So my husband, Richard, and I decided very early on that we wanted to be hands-on parents, and this led to the decision that he would stay at home. So he was at a transition point in his career and was as keen to take a step back. So Richard has studied and worked part-time intermittently since, but has essentially been a primary caregiver now for 12 years. So he's the rock Yeah, it is pretty incredible. He is the rock that's kept our family unit steady um, while I've pursued my career. And there's absolutely no way um, that I would be who I am today without him by my side every step of the way. And look, you know, as the medfem community would know, this is, you know, the the purpose of your group is that the challenges of working mothers um, Mm -hmm. that they face are not secret, However, it's actually you can't also underestimate the challenges that a male faces when he yeah. chooses to break stereotypes and stay at home too. So it's it's quite interesting to have been in that complete flip, yeah. um, and and you know we've faced criticism over the years, including from family that have assumed that you know my career has prevented him from reaching his potential, rather than actually realising it was a conscious choice that the two of us made together to do that. And, I think those kind of comments, to me, undervalue the incredibly important and difficult role that stay-at-home parents have. Like, I actually say, I've got the easy job going to Yeah. <laughs> <work every day. laughs> so, I don't know if you've heard of, Sarah, have you heard of the book, Annabel Crabb's book called The Wife Drought? Oh, no, I don't think no, I have. no. Look, that book is a game changer for anyone who think wants to be a working parent, look, it it will open up your eyes wide to the conflict, complex factors that um, make up the challenges faced by working women. And look, it's good for husbands or partners to read as well, because it really talks about the cognitive load, the additional cognitive load that women carry. So the idea of the wife drought, is that we all need a wife <laughs> and it's said in the context of the politicians that the, there's a, a lot of male politicians have a have a stay-at-home wife who carries yeah. the home front for them but the female politicians' partners often work as well mm-hmm. and that, that can be extrapolated across multiple careers and I think it brings up a lot of con, uh, concepts that are really important to people, women, who are trying to pursue high-profile careers. So I guess you asked about advice. What, what advice do people wishing to have a family in medicine is don't wait for the right time to have a family as the right time never never actually comes Mm, (laughs) they'll never there's always going to be another bit in the training ladder or another career even after fellowship because then you're like oh now i need to set up my practice and if you want to have a family and you think you're otherwise ready just get on and do it um because the right time's not going to magically appear Mm -hmm. and then once you have kids get help so, you know, gather your community around you, whoever that may be, family or good friends. You know, I've, I've rarely lived near family in my adult life. Um, so we rely really heavily on a close-knit group of friends that are in a similar situation. And it's really interesting, Richard and I talk about this a bit, actually. When we lived in the city, we knew so many people. I mean, you're living in a city with half a million people, yeah. but didn't actually have many close friends. And it really hit home To us when our second child was due and we realised there was not a single person that we felt comfortable enough to call to look after our first child in the middle of the night if I went into labor Mm. Oh gosh that is that's really sad yet since moving to the country life is completely different people that that sense of community runs deep and people are so genuine and friendly and look there's so many people now I, I can call on so you know just for your you know, medical students if you do have your family just make sure wherever you are gather your community around you whoever it is don't try and do it on your own mm-hmm. and then i think finally would be work-life balance um doesn't like like finding the time for kids work-life balance that doesn't just happen yeah you have to actually choose it and make it happen there's always going to be another patient or another person who wants something from you and you know if you truly want work-life balance you need to learn to say no and not feel guilty about it
0: mm. yeah wow fantastic yeah. advice thank you <laughs> it's all right <laughs> and i've written down the wife drought so i'll be looking at up later yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a great book um the next question is who have the most inspirational women been to you in your life and career and how have these people shaped who you are today in your personal and professional life
1: yeah so, look, I think, like like many people, um, when my mother was a magistrate, um, she was a tower of strength and yeah. she demonstrated how to overcome the challenges and the misogyny faced by women in society, particularly, you know, in positions of power and then even worse in a country area. So she, she deeply understood also the impact that her role had on society and was, um, you know, strive to be incredibly fair and just with what she was doing. So as a teenager, that was a pretty um, inspiring person to be around as you are finding out you know yourself, who you are. I also spent a lot of time with mum's mum, my grandma, mm-hmm. and I would help her with volunteer work as a child. So mm-hmm. going on Meals on Wheels and her various charities she had. So she, really with that, she taught me kindness and compassion and and the importance of giving, which I think has definitely come through in my roles. Um, professionally, so the woman who had the most impact on me was a doc, uh, Dr Felicity Park, who's an obstetrician in Newcastle and was one of my consultants when I was at ONGD Reg. So Felicity cha- she really challenged me to raise the bar to the highest standard of care that I could provide. She was just incredible to work with. And I remember one day I'd gotten a bit lazy at the end of a challenging birth sweat shift because we used to do 14-hour shifts in and 12 days in a row, like ridiculously long days. Yeah. But, um, you know, but I was being no more lazy than anyone else, but still lazy for me. <laughs> and Felicity cornered me at the nurse's desk and said and she, that she was disappointed in me. And I, I was just like, what? I remember saying to her, I was like, why have you pulled me up on this when I, I'm the only one who usually does it anyway and no one else gets pulled up? And I was having a good little whinge. And she looked at me straight and she said, Angela, because you are better than that and you shouldn't measure yourself by what you see others doing. And I realized that she expected more of me than she did of the others because she knew I could do it. Mm. And she taught me not to settle for what level of care I saw others delivering around me, but to actually deliver the best quality care I could and then strive again to do that even better, even more. So Felicity was the first person medically, I think to really see my potential and she pushed me never let me settle for second best and sometimes that was really hard there were definitely a few tears but it was an incredibly rapid period of growth for me as a doctor and I'll always thank her for that thanks Felicity
0: <laughs> shout out <laughs> wow it sounds like you've had some amazing female role models in your life so that's fantastic yes um, I've been very lucky <laughs> yeah absolutely and the final question that we have for you today is, in your opinion, what's the best piece of advice or the most important message you'd like to share with future junior doctors?
1: Yeah. So, wow, well, it's funny. I um, Actually, I asked a, um, another mentor, mentee of mine about this. I said, what's the most valuable piece of advice I've given you? So said, I need you to tell me. And she's like, well, every word. And I was like, every <laughs> word. So, look, to me, it's about um, spending time thinking about your values. So who you are, what you think is important, what upsets you and what underlies your decisions, because these are all connected to your personal values. And living according to your personal values, as we all know, has implications for well-being. And when there's incongruence between your personal and your workplace values, um, it becomes associated with burnout and medical illness. So values incongruence is often an issue we face in medicine not only with the provision of health services, but actually within our own career and life choices. And burnout is real and we need to actively prevent it. And I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years. So, you know, ask yourself, why am I doing this? You know, is that goal worth it? Are there other options? It's too easy to get on a path with your blinkers on and and you get unable to see any way off. So you need to stop and think and consider what you are prepared to compromise. So is being that particular specialist in that particular hospital so important to you that you don't have time to see your family or look after yourself? Would you actually be better off to have your second or third choice of job, but be happier at home? So the other thing I wanna just say at the end is bit of advice is find out what makes you laugh
0: and do it a lot
1: (laughs) yeah i love humor like there is too much sadness and trauma in our jobs and we talked about that earlier and Mm. you know for me it's stand up comedy if i've had a tough day I put on some stand-up comedy and have a really good belly laugh and you know you can't underestimate the good effect that that has and the endorphins that it releases so find out what makes you feel good do a lot more of it and stop doing things that don't make you feel good. It's that simple Sarah? (laughs) Yeah
0: Well, that's fantastic advice. I think again as you've said a really common issue in medical school is burnout and Medicine definitely makes you re-evaluate your values and how you want to live your life. So that's fantastic advice Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate your time. Wonderful. Thank you.